Good morning. Uh, my name is Lee. I'm the youth and family pastor here at FBC Benicia. Very excited to be getting the opportunity to preach this morning. We're going to continue in Mark chapter 6. We've been going through the book of Mark so far. Uh, and, and Mark's account of telling about Jesus, about his life, about the things he has done, and about why that matters for us. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 46. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you heard Pastor Matt talk about how Jesus took a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of fish and fed over 5,000. So this is just continuing on from that. It says that immediately Jesus made them get into the boat. So this is still the same night. Morning has not yet come. And so the first thing that we need to look at is when we open the Bible, we see things like this, right? Things about Jesus walking on water. If this is your first time in a church, first time opening the Bible, when you read that, it kind of seems at, at least somewhat intriguing, right? Like you, you may, you're not sure whether this is real, but you're at least interested to kind of see what's going to happen. Because if this guy can really walk on water, then maybe there's something there. But the danger for a lot of us who have been in church for a long time is we've heard that story before. And so our response is, yeah, yeah, Jesus walked on water. I've heard that a thousand times. What else you got for me? And so we kind of lose this sense of awe, right? We kind of, the way when you're at a family gathering, like big family gathering, right? And there's always that one relative who tells the exact same story every single year you're together. And so at first, everybody's like, is it, is it, is it him? Is it her? Is it this person beside me? And so when they tell that story the first time, it was fascinating and exciting. But now that they've been telling that same story for 20 plus years, when it begins, you're like, here we go again. This is, I, I've heard this before. This is, this is no big deal. And so we are very much in danger, those of us who have been in the church for a long time, of viewing the gospel and the works of Jesus in that way, as though it's something just common, as though it's something that just happens all the time, and it's not that big a deal because we've heard it before. Um, the best way I can think to relate this from my personal experience, I grew up in Monroe, Louisiana. Anybody ever been to Monroe, Louisiana? Yes. Fantastic. It's amazing. Anybody been to the state of Louisiana? Okay, there we go. I'm sure it's probably all New Orleans, but that's okay. If you have ever been to Monroe or to the entire state of Louisiana, there are two things that are always consistent. 
Number one, anywhere you go in Louisiana, the food is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Number two is the entire state is flat. It's flat as far as you can see, as far as you can drive, you can see for miles because there's nothing there, right? There's not even hills. We don't have much less mountains or anything of that sort. When I was 16 years old, the church that I went to, our youth pastor decided we were going to go on a ski trip. And so we had to raise up a bunch of money. We had to do cakewalks. Anybody ever do a cakewalk for fundraising? Sweet. Okay, good. Good, good. We had to do car washes. We had to do all these other things. And a couple of people from within the church kind of helped pitch in so that our youth groups, our high school students could go skiing. So we drove from Monroe, Louisiana to Durango, Colorado, which was quite a drive. And so we're going, we're leaving Texas and getting into Colorado, and it's at night, and we're exhausted. So when we get into Colorado, we don't really see anything. You know, everybody's trying to sleep. So we get in the hotel, and the next morning, we wake up, and we're talking about going to, going to the resort to go ski. And I step outside, and I see snow-capped mountains for the first time in my life. So I'm, I'm 16 years old at this point, right? And it blew me away. Think about it. A kid from, 16-year-old kid from Monroe, Louisiana, the only terrain I've ever seen in my life in person has been flat. And then I see snow-capped mountains, and I'm just blown away, right? Like, I've never seen anything this beautiful in my life, and I'm just in awe of it. So when I step outside, I'm just standing there for like five to ten minutes, just trying to take it all in. And so they're rushing, so okay, we got we to get in the van, we got to go to the resort. So I said, okay, let's go. So we get there, and everything's blanketed with snow, which again, in Monroe, Louisiana, things don't get blanketed with snow, right? Like it, it has snowed like once or twice in my life when I was there, but it's the kind where you can still see the grass and the snow, so it's not covered. And so we get there, and so first we have to do the, uh, you know, the intro level, right? You know, the french fries and pizza, french fries, pizza, for when they teach you how to ski. So when, when I get that down, I'm like, okay, I think I can do this without killing myself, but my first thought was, I want to get as high as I can. I want to go to the highest point I can get to because I know I've never been anywhere near this in my entire life. And if it looks this amazing from down here, what does it look like from up top? So at first, I was not yet familiar with the, uh, you know, the, the diamond colors, is the level. No, no, this doesn't end up bad. This doesn't end up bad. So somebody said the highest point is you get on this ski lift, and it said towards, it was like a, a double black diamond. Now, luckily, praise the Lord, somebody said, you can't go on that. And so they said, here's a, here's a green one. Here's a green one. And you can go to the highest green one. It's on this one. So I get on the ski lift. I go up there and I get off. And it's just mountains as far as I can see and just snow everywhere. And for me, I, I was like, I can't believe that this exists. Like, it just, it just blew my mind. And so I stood there for about 10 minutes and then I started skiing. It was fun. I, di I didn't kill myself or anything like that. But <laughs> later on during the week... I met somebody who was from the area, and so we were just kind of talking. I said, man, I said, how amazing that you get to see these every day. And he was like, what? I said, the mountains, they're covered with snow, they're beautiful. He's like, he's like yeah, they're okay, I guess. <laughs> and so it's that idea, right? Like if you grow up around something, it's very common to you, you take those things for granted. We all kind of lose that sense of awe that we first had. Now for me, I still get excited about snow-covered mountains. Um, over the holidays, I flew back home to visit my family, and we, we were somewhere on the flight, and I looked over, and, this, and I can see some snow-covered mountains. So I'm trying to get on my phone and take pictures. It doesn't look as good, but I'm still enamored by that every single time I see it. For those of us who have been in the church for a long time, 
It's like we're the kid that grew up in Colorado. We've lost this sense of awe for what Jesus has done. And the last song that Darren and the band led us in was called All the Poor and Powerless. And we don't appreciate, we're not fully in awe of what God has done because we don't understand that we are poor and powerless without him. Completely. Completely that way. So how do we get to the point where we continue to see what Jesus has done as amazing? Right? One, one of my favorite things is to meet someone who has just become a believer because everything is exciting. It's like their eyes have been opened for the first time. And I love hearing that story, right? It's fantastic to see just kind of their enthusiasm and learning more about Christ and about what he has done for them. But over time, a lot of us tend to lose that. So for those of you who are new in that point, and for those of you who have been in church for a while and you kind of have lost that awe, there's one question we need to go back to. Who cares? Who cares? That's our question. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus walked on water? Why does it matter for last week's story that Jesus fed the 5,000? If we can't figure out why that matters, then it's going to be completely irrelevant. It's going to become commonplace, and it's going to do us no good. So that's what we have to think about. Let's look back in verses 47 through 50. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he, meaning Jesus, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So as I said earlier, it's not even morning yet, and Jesus is already sending them off on their next mission. The reason being is that when we are involved with Jesus, there's never a, a time where we just sit on our hands and don't do anything. Jesus always has the next step for us. For those who have just become Christians, for those who have become, been Christians for 40 plus years, there is, as long as you have breath, as long as you are on this earth, Jesus has a next step for your faith. And the same thing with the disciples. It's not like as we get older, God just says, okay, don't worry about it. You, just, you guys just kind of coast, and then, you know, when, when uh, eternity gets here, we'll, we'll take care of things for you. That's never, that's never at any point where that is what Christ is calling people to do. But we notice, as we've seen throughout the book of Mark, whenever the disciples leave Jesus' presence, they always fall into distress. Every single time in the book of Mark. And in this one it says, in verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars. Now what's interesting, uh, if, if you're not aware of this, the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greek word for straining actually means to torment. So while in the boat, they were tormented by the strength of the winds. And they were literally going nowhere. They're just in the middle of the lake. Now, when it says later that night, what it's talking about, the time frame is between 3 and 6 a.m. Jesus is on the land. They're in the middle of the lake. How does he see them? How does he see them? If it's pitch black, it's the middle of the night, Jesus is on land. They're in the middle of the lake. How does he see them? Now, in, in studying for this, the path that they took in the boat would have been about a six to eight hour boat ride on, under normal circumstances. So it's not as though, you know, they're just a distance in the parking lot and Jesus could see from here to there. How did Jesus see them? It begins to speak a little bit to Jesus having the attributes of God, right? If Jesus could see them, if he understood where they were and the struggles that they were going through, how comforting is that to us? 
when we're in struggles and we're in tough times, when we're in that moment, we feel like nobody sees us. We feel like nobody cares. We feel like there's always problems and nothing is going to correct that. But to understand that Jesus sees us even in those moments. And Jesus had compassion on them. In verse 48, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. Now, sometimes people have tried to explain this way as though like maybe Jesus was on a sandbar and it just kind of seemed as though he was walking on water. But the Greek translation, the only possibility that they meant when they wrote this, when Mark wrote this, was that he was physically walking on water. There's no, there's no kind of trick to this. There's no other way for this to be explained other than that it was a supernatural event and that Jesus walked on water. That's the only way to explain that. Now, this was not just some cool random trick that Jesus did. Everything that Christ does in the Bible has purpose behind it. Every single thing. There's no accidental things. There's no, oh, hey, check this out. It's always some kind of purpose. And to see that, we have to look back to the Old Testament to kind of see what's happening here. And in Job chapter 9, verse 8, it's talking, Job is talking about God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So in the Old Testament, only God is able to walk on water. And so now when Jesus comes along, Jesus is able to walk on water. What he's beginning to do, as he did with the bread, as he's doing with this, is he is beginning to show people and reveal to people that he is God incarnate. And that just means God in the flesh. That's what Jesus is showing them. He is able to do the same things that God does. It's amazing that he's able to do that because up until this point, this, this wouldn't make sense to them, right? Like God is described in the Old Testament as something completely other than human, but Jesus is showing that he has those same attributes. Now, another part that on first glance is confusing, in the end of verse 48, it says, talking about Jesus, he was about to pass by them. So what does that mean? Like he's walking, he's like, hey guys, check this out. I don't even need a boat. I don't even, you know, I'm just walking, I'm just, I'm just cruising, I'll see you later. He was about to pass by them. But again, why does that matter? Why does it matter? Why is it worded he was about to pass by them? Well, again, we have to go back to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 22, this is God talking to Moses. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. There's also in 1 Kings 19, the same thing happens with Elijah where God uses the word, I'm going to pass by. Later in Job, it also uses the same words where God hides Job and God says, I'm going to pass by. So when it says Jesus was about to pass by them, it's not that he was just going to skip over them and go into something else. He was again revealing himself to be God. He is now doing things that only God is supposed to be able to do. He's only doing things that God's supposed to be able to do. But when Jesus passes by, he stops. They're terrified. They think he's a ghost, but he stops because Jesus' reason for being on earth was to make God visible to us, to see that God himself had come down to be in our midst, to get in our junk in life, and to be there with us. And it's the third time in the book of Mark he has done this. The third time that Jesus has done something that only God's supposed to be able to do. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus forgave sins, something God's only supposed to be able to do. 
In Mark chapter 4, he tells the winds to, to stop and to be still, and they listen. Again, only God's supposed to be able to have power over nature. But the real kicker is right here in, in verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. The it is I is the key point there. Okay, we talked earlier about the New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And there's a part when God's talking to Moses and he's telling Moses, this is what I want you to go tell the people. And Moses says, who should I say is sending me? And God's response is, I am who I am. So the Hebrew version of I am who I am and the Greek version of it is I are the same. So beforehand, Jesus was just showing he could do the things that God could do. And now here he is claiming to be God in the flesh. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. Jesus has now taken on God's name. This is a big deal. Because if this is not, if Jesus is not God, then you and I don't need to be here this morning. We should have slept in, gone to First Street and have brunch or something. Because if Jesus is not God and we cannot be saved from our sins, then we're wasting our time. So the miracle of walking on the water was not just about the miracle. Now, in verse 51, let's see how the disciples respond to this. In verse 51 and 52, he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. That was the thing that, that Matt spoke about last week. Their hearts were hardened. So they're still not getting everything, right? Right? We kind of have this idea that if we just, if people just talk about Jesus and we're around, that everything's going to be okay, and you're, people are automatically going to have faith because of that. And what Mark's telling us is that, is that no, it's not inevitable that you're going to end up with faith just because somebody talks to you about Jesus. Most of the times in the book of Mark, faith is a decision that has to be made during the midst of struggles and trials. When everything's going well, it's easy to say we have faith. I mean, right? Like, that's not a problem. But we're in the midst of these struggles and these trials. That's when it really comes, do we really have that faith in Christ? So Jesus climbs in the boat. The winds die down. Just as when the disciples left Jesus' presence, everything falls into distress for them. When Jesus is in their presence, he overcomes their storms. And this time for the wind to die down, this time Jesus didn't even have to say anything. He just got in the boat. He didn't even have to say anything. Because what happens, the disciples needed to be rescued. And a lot of times for us, we don't recognize that, right? Like all the struggles, uh, the bad times we have in our lives, we think, you know what? I am sufficient enough to be able to work my way out of this situation, to be able to take care of it. But as we find out, every one of us throughout our lives, this idea of human self-sufficiency in the end, is shown for what it is, and that's human insufficiency. Because we are not capable of doing these things without Jesus. We're not capable of saving, of rescuing ourselves. So now we see this. Jesus is claiming to be God. Okay, what do we do with that? Because if we can't answer that, we're going to continue to see things as commonplace. But if Jesus is God, if, if God, the creator of the universe, came down in human form to live among us, what do we do with that? And let's see how the people, let's look at 53 through 56. How did people respond to Jesus? It says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. 
As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, at first we think, oh, what a, what a fantastic story. People were healed. People were healed because Jesus has compassion on all of us. Even those of us who reject Jesus, he still has compassion because that's who he is. And so there's also this, this question we have to ask. Do people that receive these blessings, do they end up going into Jesus' final purpose of salvation? His reason for coming was to save us from our sins. But what happens here is most of the people in this area, what do they do? They're bringing, they're sick to Jesus. Jesus, if there's only one thing you could do for me, it's, it's heal my spouse. It's heal my child. If you do that, and then, and then I'll never bother you again. All right? What that for us, that our response in that way is, what we say is, Jesus, I want your blessings. I, I want things to go well with my family. Uh, I want my kids to be respectful and behave. Um, I want to get a promotion. I want to get that raise. I want to make more money. I want to really just have as few problems in life as possible. So if you could do that for me, that's really all I want from you. That's how we treat the majority of us, even those of us who are believers. If we're honest, how do we know? How do we know if that's how we're responding to Jesus? Think about your prayers. If you're spending time in prayer and everything is just for you to benefit in some way, then it's a good idea that you're more focused on Jesus' blessings than you are on spending time with him. Because this is a false understanding of why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to give you more money. He didn't come to make your kids be perfect. He came to save you and I from our sins because we needed that. Because that's the only thing that could happen. There's nothing, there's nothing that we could do. One of the things that we do is we want to just, we, we want to say, okay, Jesus, if you'll just give me these seven steps to take care of myself and be good with life forever, then, then that's all I want. If there's nothing else you remember today, here's what I want you to, to remember. We don't need seven steps. We need to be rescued by God. That's why Jesus being God matters. That's why walking on the water matters. That's why Jesus saying, it is I, matters, because he's claiming to be God. And if he is, then he has rescued us. Then he has done everything that he could possibly do for us. He's all-powerful. That means he can never be defeated. That means he is an adequate Savior. We cannot save ourselves, but if Jesus is God, then he has done that for us. As believers, we have security for eternity. Think about that, eternity. We're so worried about having security here on earth. And it's gone like that. And we care nothing about what eternity, or security in eternity looks like. Not a bit. Because we can't see that. And if we don't understand that that is of greater importance, we'll never understand the awe with which we need to hold Jesus when he does these miracles, when he claims to be God. We can also know that if he is God, then he will more than empower us to do what he has called us to. We have the exact right amount of time on earth to do what God has called us to. The exact right amount of time. Everything that we need has been given to us in Christ. So the question that we have to think about is, okay, 
If Jesus is God, what is, what is my response to that? Is my response awesome? That means he can give me the things I want. Or is the response to say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need you. The disciples in the boat, if you had given them seven steps how to row your boat and get to the other side, would not have mattered. They needed to be rescued. I need to be rescued. You need to be rescued. And until we get to that point where we understand that the only thing we have is the fact that Jesus has come to rescue us and it is nothing of our own. That's the only way we're going to be in awe of anything that we read in here. Because if it's something I can do myself, then this really isn't that big of a deal. But to see that I can do none of it and I need Jesus for all of it, that will continue bringing me back to God's word and to looking at it and to being amazed at the things that he has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, you, you looked down on us and you saw us. You saw our need to be rescued. And instead of telling us to do it ourselves, you came down and you rescued us. God, may we never lose sight of how amazing and how wonderful that is. We would never do that for other people, but you have done that for people who reject you and who would spit at you and who would send you to the cross to die. You came down and lived that perfect life because we couldn't do that. Instead of making us pay the penalty for our sins, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. God, may we never lose sight of how awe-inspiring that should be for us. God, you have done everything. What is our response, Lord? May it not be just for the stuff that we think that you can give us, but may it be for time just to sit at your feet and to worship you and to truly see things the way you have designed us to be. God, and that is in all of you and in union and relationship with you for who you are, God. It's your son's name I pray. Amen.